morning, church. The reading this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your hearts, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you that you are Lord of Lords and God of Gods. I thank you that um, you love us, that you watched over your people in the Old Testament in the same way you watch over us today. Just pray for each person that's here this morning, just that uh, you would open, including myself, open our hearts, our minds, to hear what it is that you are speaking to us today. And I just pray that we would be able to respond to you um, just with genuine hearts and open minds and just respond with uh, to your overwhelming love and mercy and grace um, that we would look to you uh, for all things and just have comfort in your mercy and uh, so I pray for the word that uh, Pastor Aaron's about to speak that uh, we would uh, listen and respond in joy and thanksgiving and praise so it's in your name we pray Lord amen Well, good morning. You're fine. I'm glad we're a big family where we don't have the proper slides or kids want to join their dad up on stage while he's reading scripture. It's fun to see. Well, it's good to be back with you all. Um, we had a good time away, and Chris has reminded me over and over again that we're not allowed to go to California in February because last year when we came back, we had a snowstorm. Uh, but I will say that if we go to California next year, maybe in July, you'll be even more disappointed if it snows when we return. <laughs> Well, we're in uh, Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2 this morning. Uh, some of us, we had a great uh, two days with some Net sister churches at a men's retreat and a youth retreat. Uh, we're already starting to plan what that could look like uh, next year. I hope that many more can join us. 
So as we start Nehemiah this morning, I have a question. What do you fear? Do you fear spiders or mice or snakes or darkness or heights or public speaking, failure, rejection? Uh, I think we've been away from California long enough. We, Chris and I were driving home from the airport over to my parents' house and we were on the freeway and we're like, this is a really wide freeway. It was like eight lanes and we were a little fearful. Uh, we've lived here long enough. We like living here where there's fewer people on the road. Uh, and so as we go into Nehemiah, it's not a new book for us. It's the second volume of this two-part book of Ezra and Nehemiah, similar to uh, the book of Acts to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, about 15 years has passed since uh, Ezra chapter 10 has finished. And this morning we're going to learn about what Nehemiah fears. It's not spiders, it's not freeways, it's not public speaking. Nehemiah, he fears the Lord and it drives everything that he does to live a certain way. So would you pray with me as we look in our text this morning? Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us in your word who you are, uh, that you are a great and mighty and awesome God who deserves to be feared, uh, but you are a merciful and loving and gentle Father as well, who forgives our sin, who leads us in repentance, who gives us hope, and that fear that comes from that is, is one of awe and worship. And so God, would you help us to worship you this morning? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we look at Nehemiah chapter 1, remember, if we go back to Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus, the king of Persia at one point, he was stirred by the Lord to send God's people back. And this people of God were stirred as well to go with Zerubbabel. Uh, and then Ezra was stirred in chapter 7 to go and to lead another group back. And now it's Nehemiah's turn to take the reins. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 1. One. We'll read the first chapter. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. 
Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the words that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven... From there I will gather them and bring them to a place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. We'll stop right there. Aware of the desolation of Jerusalem, Nehemiah goes to God. And initially, we don't know why the walls are crumbled down, why the gates are burned. It wasn't because of bureaucracy. It wasn't because they overspent and ran out of money. It was not because of adversaries that were causing the walls to come down. This book will show us how Nehemiah is a gifted person. He's really good at organization. He's really good at leading God's people. He's really good at accomplishing great things for God. But most importantly, Nehemiah is a man of prayer. Prayer is natural response to the dependence that we have on God. When we don't pray, we basically are saying, God, I don't need you. God, I can do this on my own. I've got this. I don't need your help. And before Nehemiah does anything, he talks to God. Prayer is a necessity for this leader of Nehemiah. And he prays God's word. In verse 5, Nehemiah, he quotes Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, verbatim. Look at verse 5, and I'll read the passage from Deuteronomy. This is what Deuteronomy says. Now therefore, I'm sorry, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. But Nehemiah leaves out the last couple words of Deuteronomy. It says this, to a thousand generations. And so Nehemiah, he appeals to the Lord, the covenant-keeping God of the Bible, who keeps his promises, Yahweh. He prays to the God of heaven who owns everything and is sovereign over everything. And Nehemiah knows who God is, and so he goes to God, knowing God's character as a covenant keeper. And God keeps his covenant relationship with his people. It's central to all of the Bible, to a thousand generations. And it's this covenantal love that God has that communicates this idea of loyalty. And this loyalty that God has is loyalty to himself, that he will keep his character established and consistent, but also loyalty to his people. And that's who Nehemiah goes to speak to. Jesus modeled this in the Lord's Prayer. Before we petition, before we ask, before we request anything of God, how does the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father, who is in heaven. So prayer is necessary. Prayer should be based on Scripture. Prayer also rests in God's character. And in Nehemiah's prayer is where we find out why the walls are in destruction. The people of God have not kept their end of the covenant, we see in verse 7. 
Recalling the Exodus, which John helped us to see in our Bible reading, God has redeemed them already from Egypt. They're still slaves, yet they're slaves in Persia. But most importantly, they're slaves to sin. Their nature, the people of God's nature, has not changed. They're still sinners. But God's nature, God's character, has never changed. And Nehemiah, he knows God is gracious. But he also knows that God has wrath towards sin. And so Nehemiah, he fears God, and so he confesses it all. He brings it all out in the open. He communicates to God what God already knows. God's not like a waffle where he's got this little square of mercy, or this little square of love, or this little square of grace, or wrath, or justice, or knowing everything. He is all of those things at the same time. His attributes He has completely and always. He is wholly just. He is wrathfully loving. He is powerfully gracious. All at the same time. Nehemiah, he knew our scripture reading from this morning. That Israel was commanded to know God, but also commanded to fear Him, to obey Him, to follow Him. Yet they failed. And verse 11 shows us the fear of God is the foundation for Nehemiah's prayers for Nehemiah's requests. One commentator said this, to fear God's name is essentially the same as fearing God himself, since the name of God here represents God's character and all that he is. Nehemiah didn't justify the situation. God, you just didn't give us what we needed to build the walls. The walls aren't down because the work is hard, even though it is, or the adversaries, they push back. The walls are down because the people of God sinned. And fearing God's wrath also calls us and leads us to acknowledge God's abundant mercy. The Puritans, they used a phrase called quorum Deo. For those of you who know Latin, you might have picked up that it is Latin for before the face of God or to live a life in the presence of God. And so to live quorum Deo, to live a life like this, is that one's entire life is lived in the presence of God, under God's authority, for God's glory, where God knows everything, where God sees all. So when temptation arises, we flee from our sin. And if we do sin, we lead ourselves into contrition or mourning like Nehemiah does and having sorrow for our sins. We confess our sin like Nehemiah does. We confess to God. God, I have sinned against you. We confess to each other. I have sinned against God. And God is faithful to forgive us. To fear God is to acknowledge in every aspect of our lives that we live before God always. His watchful, knowing eye sees everything. And we live according to the Scriptures. And so then our prayers should model Nehemiah's prayers. We don't justify our sins. We bow in humility. We acknowledge, we weep over our sins, the sins around us. Not We, we don't just go and post those things on social media, how disappointed we are. When churches stray from biblical fidelity, when they follow after the world's leadings and cultural views of sexuality and leadership within the church, we don't approve of the sin. We mourn because they're not following God's word. 
Nehemiah didn't scroll through social media and mock the heartache of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. He went to God. Our culture is very, very good at mourning, but not for sin. Man, I'm so bummed I didn't get what I wanted. Or I'm so disappointed that this circumstance is before me. God, why would you allow this to happen to me, your servant? But for Nehemiah, holiness is the goal. Mourning our sin is how we get there. Father, forgive me for sinning against you. And so with me, may we, as a church, live lives before God in purity, in holiness, in humility, in repentance, knowing that there is great mercy in the God of the Scriptures. And He executes judgment and justice, but we get Jesus' righteousness, and Jesus gets the judgment that we deserved. And so Nehemiah is a good leader to follow. Before we look what happens next, I'd like you to consider our response and learn from Nehemiah's prayer. First, I see we think we see in the text that we pray the Bible. To do so, we must know the Bible, to know what sin is, to know how God calls us to live. When we know sin, we confess our sins, we repent of our sin, we change directions, and we leave our sin behind. And so, friends, allow God's Word to wash over you. As the psalmist says, that I have hidden your Word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. So we pray the Bible. Second, we can rest in God's character as revealed in God's Word. And we remember that our loving Father, He delights to hear our prayers, to respond to us, to listen to us, to then forgive us. When we confess our sins to Him because He has forgiven us in Jesus by Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, that is His death and His resurrection from the dead to give us a newness of life, we respond in thankfulness, in gratitude to the gospel, for the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's God's character. When He says He will save us from our sins, we can rest in the fact that He will. And so we pray the Bible, we rest in God's character, and we follow Nehemiah's example that we fear the Lord. And then we see in verse 11, I didn't read it, it says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. That abrupt transition. Let's see what happens at the cupbearer and what he does in light of the fear of God that he has as he approaches a man that he fears, the king of Persia. Look at chapter 2 with me. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its great gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may be rebuilded. 
And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And so the fear of the Lord drives Nehemiah to his knees, but it also drives him to stand confidently before the most powerful man in the world. The cupbearer is a position of influence. It's a position of trust. The, Nehemiah was tasked with bringing wine to the king that was not poisoned. So there's the trust. And it was consistent. The kings, they love wine. It was fermented, so it was healthier for them to drink than the water. And so he was in this position of leverage. Nehemiah wasn't interested in relinquishing his exalted status in Persia to return to the insignificant city of Jerusalem. He was committed to being in Persia, to serving the king, and he wasn't seeking to manipulate the system either. He didn't throw some water in his eyes to rub his eyes to make sure he sniffed a lot when he comes into the king's presence. He didn't put on a droopy face. He went to work. He even tried to hide his sadness, it says in the text. Kristen and I, we've been married and together now almost 20 years. And it's really easy for us to tell when one is not right. We see a face or we hear words or a tone or like, are you okay right now? And I'm fine as does not cut it. Many of you have been married for a long time and you know when your spouse is not feeling <coughs> proper. Did something happen? Nothing just doesn't cut it. That's the level of intimacy that Nehemiah has with the king of Persia. And verse 2 says that he feared the king who could take his life. You don't just speak up in the presence of the king because it could go poorly for you. But he fears God more. And so when the king notices his sadness, Nehemiah shares. But before he responds, do you see what he did? In verse 4, he prayed again. God, who stirs kings, who can protect Nehemiah, that's who Nehemiah goes to first. Nehemiah fears the king of heaven. And so resting on God's character and God's word in an intimate and private setting with the queen by his side, vulnerable and helpless, Nehemiah requests like Jesus requested and said to request in Luke 18. I'll read it. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to his disciples to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The king of Persia did not fear God. He didn't fear man. He had no reason to. Yet he lets one of his most trusted servants, Nehemiah, leave. 
And given an inch, Nehemiah, he takes a mile. He gets protection. He also gets provision for his journey, for the work that he will accomplish in Jerusalem. And so when we fear God, we are given confidence in the midst of earthly fear, whatever that may be for you. In verse 8, it says, The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Where we saw in Ezra chapter 1, the God had stirred within Cyrus and the people, and now the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, is stirred as well. And we're reminded of these words from Ezra 3 verse 11, this worshipful song that the people of God sang, God is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. And so Nehemiah, he fears the proper king. And we are standing before the king who he should be afraid of. God put Nehemiah in the role of cupbearer for a reason. For such a time as this, as we'll see, or you would see, in the next book of Esther after Nehemiah. And in Matthew 10, when Jesus sent out his disciples, he commands them to be innocent and shrewd. He commands them to be aware of men who can kill them or imprison them. But Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so Nehemiah, he adores God. He acknowledges the sin of God's people. He confidently asks for God's provision, and it's graciously given to him. Nehemiah continues to fear God. So Nehemiah is a man of prayer. Consider his fear, though, before we look at the next section in his return to Jerusalem. Like, be, like, like Nehemiah, you have people in your life who you may fear. Trust God, He probably has you before those people for a reason. Your work, your neighbors, your family, your friends, they're in your life for a reason. Sometimes you might be even scared to speak up to them for whatever reason. Maybe God has you in their life to bear witness to who Jesus is and what He has done. Maybe it's so you could be used by God to leverage that situation to build up God's people. It is not by accident that God has you in your spheres of influence to use, be used by God to influence others because God is sovereign. God has planted, where you are, planted you where you are for the sake of bearing witness to who He is and what He's done. God has planted you there to share with them of maybe your fear of God, to call them to join in fearing God themselves. Maybe God has put you in the path of people so you can direct, direct them to submit and follow Nehemiah's example of mourning over sin, receiving the mercy and grace that comes through Jesus as well. Having integrity, sharing the gospel, evangelism doesn't need to be, well, I'll go to Montpelier or I'll go to Africa, which is maybe easier than going to Montpelier. You're probably the answer to the prayers that you may ask. God, would you put somebody in that person's life to share the gospel, to direct them to you? Help me serve my boss. Share the gospel with my family members. Love my neighbor. Oftentimes, it's the one making the request. God, would you put somebody in that person's life who's the answer to that prayer? 
God probably wants to use you for the benefit of those around you. So follow Nehemiah's example. Fear God. Don't fear man. Be bold. Nehemiah gets another test as he returns to Jerusalem. He doesn't fear the king. Well, he's got adversaries as well. Does he fear them? That's the question. Look at verse 9 through the end of the chapter. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it's displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night and had a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the walls, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, so I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins and with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that had, the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us, arise, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Geshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah's arrival into Jerusalem has created some problems for Sanballat and Tobiah. These guys are mentioned in almost every book of this, uh, or every chapter of Nehemiah. And the faithfulness of God's people often leads to those around us, to those who are opposed to God, and to some trouble, and to some problems. When Israel was in Egypt, it became a problem as their population grew for Pharaoh. When they returned to the land, the nations that were already in the promised land, they did not like God's people arriving. When Jesus arrived on the scenes, if you're familiar with his birth narrative, it was Herod who went and murdered innocent babies because he knew that his throne was in jeopardy. Churches planted, the gospel shared, standing for truth will cause problems and does cause problems for those who reject the word of God and truth. Where God is antithetical to the world around us. His people and his world are incompatible with the sin of the world. They oftentimes don't like it and they will persecute us. Sometimes actively and blatantly, sometimes a little behind the scenes. The gospel is offensive to those who do not believe it, but it's the power of God for salvation, as Paul says, and so we should be unashamed, like Paul says, to proclaim it. I love biographies of Christians who've come before us. William Tyndale is known for translating the Bible into English, but he's also known for calling out the sin of the King of England. He escaped to Europe, but he was eventually betrayed, 
When the king found him, he strangled him, and then he burned him at the stake. But his final words, recorded at the stake with fervent zeal and a loud voice, were these, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He feared God, and he petitioned God on behalf of the king who was about to take his life. He did not fear man. Persecution may arise when we stick up for truth. Nehemiah's fear of God leads him to do what God desires, though. Sambalot and Tobiah, they wanted to assert their authority in Jerusalem. Nehemiah doesn't go on the offensive. He doesn't put a placard in front of his house, make Jerusalem great again. He doesn't post all over Facebook, can you believe these guys, how intolerant, how unloving they are? He doesn't proclaim, the king told me I can do this. Look at this piece of paper that I have. you got to let me keep doing what I want to do. Look at this government document. I have rights. He goes in the cover of night to do his work. He could have been bold because the king committed to protecting him. Nehemiah, though, he goes at night to survey Jerusalem. He doesn't even address Sambalot and Tobiah. He addresses the people of God. He was innocent and shrewd, like Jesus said to me. I think it's similar to the situation that Mid-Vermont Christian School is facing today. I emailed you about it, and the state is opposed to what the school stands for. But instead of addressing the state or posting on social media or calling in all the attorneys and getting the media involved, what did Mid-Vermont do? They reached out to Christians. Would you pray for us? Abraham Lincoln, who faced intense opposition, he said this, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. Prayer sustained him as he led a nation in turmoil, just like Nehemiah is leading a nation in turmoil. And the pastor Chuck Swindoll says, Nehemiah is a leader from his knees up. Remember that. And with the same terms in chapter 1, Nehemiah, he calls God's people to trust and fear God, hoping that they will mourn like he did. And recounting God's provision in verse 18, he says, it's time to get to work. And God's good hand makes it good work. Nehemiah is a decisively impactful leader. In his first speech, he says, we're going to get to work. We're going to do the good work that God has led to do. And it's God's good character that makes the work good. It motivates the workers. It's God's glorifying work. It's hard, but the fear of the Lord drives Nehemiah to stand up in the midst of opposition. He isn't opposed to adversaries. He is for building. Where God's good hand was on Ezra when he asked for favor, and then he went to Babylon. When he gathered the people to go, when he sent ministers out, when he was delivered from ambushes and enemies, and that's that same good hand of God that is upon Nehemiah. That phrase, the good hand of our Lord, is mentioned, I think, seven or eight times in these two books. This recurring expression of God's good hand, it recognizes who is orchestrating, who is organizing all of these events and these blessings. Their bad situation was not irreversible because God could change things. God's hand was upon them. I think the last three years have been pretty turbulent. But church, God's good hand has been upon us. And God is continuing to call us to good work. 
So consider God's gracious hand that has proven himself over and over again in the midst of the challenges over the last three years, where God's word has transformed us. We've celebrated baptisms. We have new members that have joined us. We have completed Bible reading plans by many of you in this room. We have more elders, more deacons. We are sustainable on our own as an autonomous church. We have more people engaged in prayer. We have more people engaged in fellowship with one another. We enjoy being together. That is God's gracious hand showing us His good work in and through us. We have much to be grateful for. And so God's good hand has been on us, and we can give ourselves to more good work in the days ahead. As the rebel, he told the adversaries in the book of Ezra, who slyly tried to infiltrate the work that they were doing, they have no place in the work. Nehemiah, he says the same thing here. There's no guarantee for success, yet they keep on working. God may not prosper everything that we even set out to do. But we can respond like Nehemiah did, that he will continue to build us up. Where we cast some vision as a church based on God's word, but I don't know if it'll be successful in the world's eyes. But I guarantee you this, we will look back one day, years, months, decades, and we will see God's good hand at work. God guarantees our sanctification for those who love Him and follow Him. And so don't miss what God might be doing now and get distraction, but distracted by what God may do down the road. And it's worth stepping out in faith and trusting that He will do great and mighty things because His good hand will always be upon us. Nehemiah firmly expresses what God would have of His people. They will not be shaken. They will not be deterred. They will keep their eyes fixed on the prize and the goal that God has before them. And Nehemiah is content to rest in God's faithfulness. Nehemiah is content to leave fruitfulness to God. Biblically, work isn't about making money. It's about exerting effort that aims at producing a new state of affairs, as J.I. Packer says. And the Bible balances work with rest. God made us to work, but He also made us to rest. In the creation, God said, let there be light, and it was good. Let there be fish, and it was good. But then on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. Not because he was tired, he's gone, he doesn't wear out of energy, but because he made the seventh day holy. God rests on the seventh day so that we, in turn, would need to rest. That we, in turn, would be holy. So fearing God gives us confidence in the midst of the world opposed to the work of God. And so we can go to him. We can be bold. We can rest in his character, be confident in our trials. We can fear God. And we could be faithful. And so as we wrap up, I have a question. Do you want to be faithful? If you don't, what do you fear? Consider what God has done for us. Consider what God has done for you. We can work hard, not because we are earning something, but because... God has earned it for us. 
And so we put effort towards faithfulness, trusting God with fruitfulness. And so we fear God. We strive for faithfulness, to be consistent in our work. And when the world says, don't do that, or you can't do that, we respond like the apostles did. It's better for us to obey God than man. We are called to be faithful, church, to be set apart in the world, to serve God. And because we fear God, we pray. We don't fear man. We don't fear those who are against us. We are faithful, and we do so confidently. One commentator called work the drumbeat of Nehemiah. We're going to see this word work over and over and over again. And so, friends, let's fear God. Let's pray boldly. Let's live confidently. Let's be faithful, trusting God with fruit. And let's give ourselves to good work. We can follow Nehemiah's example. We're going to see this over the next few weeks as we sustain faithfulness ourselves to the good work that God has called us to do. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your promises are sure. Your word never returns void. It's the words of eternal life. Where else shall we go? That your word rests on your character and we can trust it. And so God, we ask that you would help us to be faithful to the things you call us to. God, would you help us to be faithful, to repent of our sin, to turn, to fight it, to hate it. God, we thank you that you are faithful. So faithful that you, before the foundation of the world, decided to save sinners like us by sending your Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But the grave did not hold him. He rose from the dead to give us a newness of life. God, you have earned everything for us. And so, God, would you give us the grace to put forth effort to live lives in response to that, confident that our labor is not in vain, knowing that you will bring to completion that which you started in us for your glory and for our good and pleasure. So, Father, we thank you, and we desire to lift up our voice to sing of the mighty and powerful work that you have done in us and for us. For you are a great God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.